Hello and welcome to Tigers by the Fire, a podcast out of Holy Cross High School. And today we're going to be talking about Executive Order 9066. This is the Japanese internment camps held in the United States during World War II. With me is Alejandro Defer and Carlos Castellanos. Oh, hello. This is Carlos Castellanos. Thank you for having me. And hi, this is Alejandro Defer, and thank you for having me as well. So this topic is one that I think is kind of controversial in a lot of ways. A lot of people don't always want to talk about it because it does shed kind of negative lights on the U.S. It is a racially charged topic, obviously, too, with Japanese-American citizens being put into internment camps. And I think that's the, the one thing I want to make sure we start this off with is understanding that this is not a POW program. These are American citizens living on the West Coast who are taken from their homes and put into internment camps held by the U.S. government. So starting us off is going to be Carlos. Yes. Yeah, so the main thing here is after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States felt threatened by all Japanese Americans and um, they completely violated the civil rights of these people. Yeah, so basically Executive Order 9066 was like signed right after or shortly after Pearl Harbor. And this kind of started the moving up or classifying of the Japanese people in the American on American soil into small internment camps where they were forced there. Yeah, and from you guys' notes, I mean, this happens on February 19th. So we're talking just about two months, two and a half months after Pearl Harbor. Which is significant because obviously, as you guys are saying, I mean, the motivator for this is fear. And I think in the moment, there's a, there is some rational fear. Uh, why, why, are, why is the American government afraid? What do they think? Their main concerns uh, for these Japanese Americans are that they're going to be espionages and, you know, spy and tell the Japanese back home, like, our tactics and things going on here. And their fear was that these people could turn their backs on America and, you know, release more information than they should. Yeah, but not only that, also dangers onto the population as if maybe a Japanese fighting force or revolution might start. Yeah, and then I think sabotaging in factories was another concern. Now, I think what's funny about this is when you look at the geographic distance from the United States to Japan, it's virtually impossible for that to even be coordinated. And the Japanese fleet isn't even made to necessarily come over to the U.S. at this time. So... It's a lot of fear. It's a lot of unknowns, and that's kind of why it happens. But I mean, it's not a, obviously not a justification for it. Now, this affects a lot of people. One hundred and seventeen thousand people are estimated to have been put into internment camps, which I think is kind of crazy. Uh, Canada, as you guys said, did the same thing as well. So. Yeah, the biggest thing that stood out to me was how quick these um, camps started to form and how they started gathering the people. You know, within hours and days of uh, Pearl Harbor, they started like. Um, classifying people and taking them away. Yeah, because even though the executive order of 9066 was was signed February 19th of 1942, they started uh, rounding up Japanese people all the way from December 7th of 1941, like hours after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, and I know uh, in Hawaii in particular, they did that right away, and then in California as well. And and now when we talk about rounding them up and putting them in, in these camps, these camps are located all across the U.S. What are some of the, like, the locations that you guys found yeah, well, there are about 10 camps in the, of the Japanese internment camps, and most of them... Well, you get a lot that are located like in the desert regions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Uh, out, outside of California, outside of major cities. But they're secluded, right? They're secluded from the, the population. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of keep hidden the qualities and how they lived in, that, in the low internment camps. They keep hidden from the public mostly. Yeah, and, and there's not really any public release of pictures mm-hmm. either, exactly. um, which I think is kind of interesting. 
So it is kind of like almost like our dirty little secret during the war. So it, it's something to kind of, I think, keep in mind. The other part, too, is, you know, what happened to the citizens, the Japanese Americans? What happened to their property when they got pulled out? Yeah. Possessions they, in general. They had to get rid of all their stuff before. They were given a certain time period to get rid of all their stuff and they could barely take any things with them. They were limited to like a certain amount of bags or only a certain amount of carry-ons and this. And their assets were even frozen at the time. So their houses, businesses, anything they own, they were frozen. And so you have, you know, people who came here and these are not just first generation immigrants. So sometimes these are third generation immigrants mm-hmm. who've been here their whole lives and they've built up these you know, these businesses or, or just these you know communities and they're completely taken away. And I think that's one of the, the tragic parts uh, that goes along with this. And they don't get it back either, I think is the other big part to talk about. Yeah, you know, coming to the U.S., having the American dream and have, being able to build your own business and uh, succeed in life and then having that all taken away from you within hours of, you know, an attack that your uh, country of origin did, you know, it's, it's uh, brutal. Now, to, to get into the kind of the, the meat of this, there's a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment that develops in the United States during this time. What can you guys kind of tell me about that? Well, the anti-Japanese sentiment, basically, it was easy for the Americans to classify because of the Japanese distinguishing features such as eye or their eye shapes and stuff like that. So it was very easy for the American government to class or to be able to notice them. And that's why it was easy for the population to kind of set them apart. So you get a a visual racial, I think, component to it. And then, of course, Pearl Harbor factors into it. And Mm. so there's a lot of backlash, right? You have people who have attacked Japanese-American businesses directly after that event. So I think that's kind of important uh, to talk about. Now, I know you guys want to talk about John uh, DeWitt a little bit. Yeah, he was one of the bigger bigger, um, American figures that pushed for these camps to be going on. You know, he, he also wanted to have Italians and Germans in these camps but uh due to the you know like the reasoning he wasn't able to push for all that yeah and they he basically pushed for the creation of these military zones and japanese attainment and this is what's kind of scary is this is like a high army officer this he mm-hmm. was lieutenant and like leader of the western defense command and this was like someone strong in our yeah he's a lieutenant general he's one of the, the highest ranking yeah people they believe in that which was kind of scary and, and, and again your primary motivator is fear here and it's it's kind of telling. And like, I think, Carlos, you said at the beginning, like this happened really, really quickly. Yeah. And things escalated very quickly. And you know, the United States, we often pride ourselves on like civil liberties, but I mean, effectively they're gone. Right. So that's, I think something is, is kind of interesting to talk about. So the, the war relocation authority begins to move them. Right. And, and, and then they, so, so where are they, they're moving them off the, the coastline. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's the big focus at the beginning is moving them off the coastline. And by 1942, they have, or by March, right, they have this big plan to kind of move them into these camps. And so, as you said, six days notice, they move. So that's kind of interesting. And by the way, is this men and women or their children involved? How, how is this? It's a whole family? These people are like moved by family. So it's men, women, children all moved into their own camps where they're separated with their own school system, own kind of separated from society. How did the families adapt to this type of stuff? Well, it must have been hard for them. And, you know, one of the biggest things, the camps, uh, they did offer jobs. Obviously, it was hard labor, but they were able to, uh, not not trying to say that uh, it was a good thing for them, but the camps had um, their own, you know, society rules and their, their uh, civil rights were taken away. But in a way, they were still able to, you know, educate themselves, especially the kids that had schools. And the people had jobs and, you know, they still had like a 
good community going on. They try to make the best of it. I think that the Japanese children had it the worst because they were young and didn't really understand what's going on. All they know is they're being forced and taken out of their school or wherever they went before and forced into their own brand new school where it's like they aren't treating the same or anything. But in their defense, the Japanese made the best out of it. They would try to embrace their own cultures in internment camps, but still it was one of the horrors of the United States. Yeah, we talk about like the the culture they do. I mean, they plant gardens, they decorate it and everything else to try and make it kind of homely. But at the end of the day, they're in these large bunkhouses, right. uh-huh. shoulder packed with people, right? They have communal showers. They have to, you know, uh, what was it? I know one of the videos we watched, the guy had to walk two blocks effectively to go to the bathroom for, mm-hmm. for, the, for the latrines. So, I mean, it's a pretty horrible situation, especially for the kids. Yeah, and they also, like, limited their education like that. They would only have a certain number of people allowed to leave the, inter- the little camps and go to college and university and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and that is kind of interesting that they let them go to the universities and stuff eventually. Yeah, more of like what you were talking about, the violence in the centers, you know, they, the American people had no problem in trying to shoot one of them. You know, even when they tried fleeing or escaping the camps, they would easily just shoot, find it easy to shoot them. And, you know, they didn't really, like, hold themselves back. And I think one of the things that's interesting, whenever you hear firsthand accounts, um, and I know we had looked at a couple um, almost all of the Japanese American survivors of these camps uh, talk about the fact that they, they told the, the Japanese Americans that these camps are there for their protection, but the all the defenses for it, the machine guns and everything else, they're not looking outside the camp. They're looking inside Point the camp. Anywhere. Yeah, make sure yeah. no one runs off and stuff like that. So I know you guys had uh, uh, Fred Korimasu. Uh, did you guys want to talk about him a little bit? Yeah, this was a guy who, uh, he was arrested, but he refused to, you know, relocate to Japanese internment camps. Um, his case made it into the Supreme Court, and it, he was just trying to argue that uh, this executive order 9066 violated his uh, rights. And the most shocking, one of the most shocking um, results in the Supreme Court, he lost the case, and he became to become, a, he went on to become an activist for these people. And he eventually won the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1998. Uh, Yeah, now he's noticed as a, we see him now today as a civil rights activist, but back then we would, um, the United States would critique him and like he would stand out. And I have to just find that's crazy too. And I think the biggest impact he had was that he began to like revolutionize for these people because up to this point, I'm sure you had people standing out, but I, I think his case stood out the most. And, you know, really inspired the people to begin um, fighting for their rights again. And the fact that it actually got to the Supreme Court yeah. is a remarkable thing in and of itself. And, you know, what's crazy is when you read the actual Supreme Court case on this, um, there is an acknowledgement that the rights have been taken away. And the justification is that this is a wartime powers decision. So the president has unilateral control during because of wartime authority and that there's a clear and present danger. And... As far as any statistical measure goes, there was zero incidents of Japanese espionage on the West Coast, and there were no incidents of sabotage, or at least that I'm aware of. So I think that that's kind of a, a crazy thing. And when you look at their rights, I, let's talk about like specifically, like what, so what type of rights are we talking about that are violated by the internment of Japanese Americans? Well, first of all, they're forcing of moving, freezing of assets, as we mentioned before, but also the the. Um, security and police or the police you can call it 
that worked at these internment camps to make sure that the Japanese who stay in the camps would abuse them and treat them with minimal rights, beating them, stuff like that would happen you commonly. Know, they're not really able to have their own freedom. Um, they have to live behind in these barbed wires and in the camps and stuff. They're not really being able to, you know, be humans, being able to go out and, you know, living your life and having the tradition that you build in the, in your country and taking all that away from you. It takes a lot of your rights away. Yeah. You think about like due process, right? You know, the, the Bill of Rights, there's a, a series of things that are reserved for legality and they don't have a right of due process. There's no trial on this. They're simply just incarcerated, which is a violation of their rights. And I think that that's kind of, you know, really interesting to, to factor in. Now, one thing that I think is also really crazy is that when you start to get to 1943, as the war has now drug on, all of a sudden the army wants these guys to enlist in the army. I mean, obviously it's hard to put yourself in that situation, but I mean, how do you think that conversation goes when you're incarcerated and then, hey, let's go fight for the same people who have guns pointed at you. Well, first of all, as a, if you were a, or if you were a Japanese soldier who, or citizen who was forced to live in this internment camp, you wouldn't be quite devoted into the army. And if anything, that would cause more betrayal of the army in, in the battlefield. Yeah. In, in ironically, you know, the, the 442nd, which is the the big Japanese-American regiment that forms out of these camps, uh, they end up being like the most decorated soldiers in Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. They go into Italy, they break the, the Gothic Line siege, and they have more medals of valor award than any other unit in the army uh, during the European campaigns. Yeah. And when they come home, their you know, family are living in camps. Yeah, that's another thing they did. They were like... The and the Japanese members or the Japanese citizens that did join the army would be placing, make sure they'd be placed in Europe instead of in the Pacific. Cause they had that, even though they were fighting for us, they still had the fear that they would turn on us when they would see, um, what they believe was their culture. Yeah. And I think those fears are kind of, uh, premature. Like, like I don't think that's necessarily how things would have went. I think they might have had more problems, you know, coexisting with certain elements of the U.S. Marines and the, army in the Pacific because of how brutal that war was. But I mean, to your point, and it's a good point, yeah, there was fear in the army that they would just all of a sudden just turn and fight the Americans, which is crazy because these people, mm-hmm. and when we say Japanese, we're talking about Japanese American citizens. Most of these people were born in the United States. They've never lived in Japan. They don't know anything about Japan. They might speak Japanese, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, that's kind of a crazy situation. Yeah, um, going off from who we were talking about, um, Fred Kuramatsu, he was able to inspire people such as Mitsuo Endo, or, yeah, who is one of the biggest pushers for uh, the ending of all these camps. Yeah, he his um, fight went to the Supreme Court as well on Endo versus the United States, and it basically ruled that the relocation authority had no authority to subject citizens who are condescendingly loyal to its leave procedure, and that's a quote. So basically, the case was brought on behalf of Monsieur Endo, daughter of Japanese immigrants from Sacramento, California. And after filling, uh, filing a habeas uh, corpus petition, the, co- the um, court over- offered to uh, free her. But she refused because she also wanted to have uh, everybody free, not just her, because that wouldn't be fair. And so two years later, the Supreme Court made its decision and it gave it gave Roosevelt the President Roosevelt the um, decision to begin the camp closures before the announcement. And one day before Roosevelt made his announcement, the Supreme the Supreme Court revealed its decision too. So it's uh, one of those things where uh, they had to get everybody down on you know 
what they wanted to do. And she was able to uh, inspire President Roosevelt, who I, who I think was hard-headed about this. And think about FDR. He's, he's obviously a president that, depending on political spectrum, people can really love, they can really yeah, hate. Uh-huh. Is this a blemish on his record, in your yeah. opinion? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, he did a lot for the country. And one of the biggest things that he did here was violate the American rights of these people. And even though he had his good moments... Um, this still leaves a mark on him and especially on these, um, Japanese American citizens. Um, it should have never been, you know, right for them to go through all of this. Uh, what's kind of scary is that Roosevelt had this camp, um, these internment camps for a while and it kind of took the Supreme Court to make the decision on endos for him to finally come out and start the, the closing of these camps. Yeah. And I think you get the feeling, um, that as the Supreme Court cases start to build up, he slowly swayed by that in understanding that the the public the opinion of the court is eventually going to go against him, and I think he he knows that and makes those moves. And obviously, he doesn't live much later after this because he's uh, dead by April. Uh, but that's not going to be the end of the story for this, right? I mean, this is going to be uh, decades long because obviously people have to live with this after. So, what happened in the aftermath of the war? So, the reparations for the war, you know, they found it good that with a few um, giving out money to these people. That they would be able to, uh, you know, cover up for what they did. And one of the biggest, uh, you know, um, controversies or conflicts in this was if this was the, if this was justifiable, these uh, reparations that they gave the Japanese Americans, if it was enough to make up for what they did to them. Yeah, because what they're going to do, uh, and it starts in uh, 1976, right? Uh, to combat Executive Order 90669066, uh, uh, they are going to award $20,000 each uh, to over 80,000 people. And so that creates reparations payments. And obviously, this is going to help out a lot of people who are uh, who are involved in these camps. And I'm sure, I mean, that was a big deal back then. Yeah. Um, but when you think about reparations payments, I mean, that opens up a whole other debate, too, mm-hmm. on other groups of people. Uh, and I think that that's, that's what makes that really interesting is that um, this is a definitive acknowledgement by Congress in 1988 to say that this was wrong, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it took 30 years for for Congress to kind of put this out there. And this is, even though it's awarding 20 grand to the, to the survivors or the ones who made it out the internment camps, it's still leaving that psychological aspect that money would not be able to fix. Being able to be taken out of your home, thrown into an internment camp, and having your whole life change in less, in a matter of maybe two, three days. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of funny because I think in the modern context, uh, people try to gloss over this. And I mean, there is a definitive difference between this and say like, you know, German concentration camps in the Holocaust. Obviously this does not involve mass murder, nor does it involve extermination. But sometimes I feel like people use that to diminish this as a whole. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is still a traumatic event, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so I think that's the important thing that we we make sure we acknowledge it that and then on the flip side, there are some people who try and make it seem equally the same. And it's just simply it's not equally the same. It doesn't make it any worse than what it was. It's still a horrible thing, which I think is important to kind of recognize. Yeah, a common debate on like softening how we treated the um, Japanese in internment camps was bringing up how the Japanese treated American, American captured in war 
in the POW camps, yeah. but that doesn't fix what we still did wrong, even though they did something And else. it doesn't even fit in the argument because yeah. these aren't Japanese citizens. These are just exactly. American citizens yeah. who had nothing to do um, with the Tojo regime or, or how they treated American POW camps. Like, I think to your point, Alejandro, it's almost like every argument that tries to diminish it is usually pretty, st- not stupid, but yeah, it's usually pretty stupid. They're not, they're not good arguments. Yeah. I guess the last question you guys kind of had, do you think the, like the reparation payments, does that fix what happened or is that simply just a, a way of trying to put a bandaid on a wound that, you know, ultimately, you know, bled for a long time, obviously. Yeah. Now, so going off your analogy, I feel like the scar will still be there, you know, putting this bandaid over, um, the trauma that they caused, I think it could help. It does help them a lot, but at the same time, these are memories that are going to be deeply scarred in them. And being able to forget this, because it can't be forgotten. Like you can't just be like, "Oh yeah, give me that money. It's all good." I feel like the people have so you know they have to live with this trauma within them. So I would say, in a way, it did help them out. I'm sure you know uh, money changes over time. The value of it. And I'm sure $20,000 was probably a lot of money back then, than compared to what today is. But if you, if we're talking in terms of today, $20,000, I wouldn't think it's good. But back then, I think it does help them a lot. Even then, it's kind of scary how Congress, this took 30 years for them to come out with the Civil, Civil Liberties Acts and like to put this band-aid over gunshot wound just to, I guess, to show on paper that they really cared. But there's still much more that could have been done. And I don't think it kind of repaired the damage done for the internment camps. Yeah, I think both of you guys hit kind of the nail on the head. So I guess I'm going to end with this question. In in looking at this whole situation, why do you think, and this will be the, the last thing we do, why do you think this topic was glossed over in schools throughout, really up until recently, probably the last 15 years this really wasn't a part of most curriculums in education. Why do you think that is? Well, this this has been seen a lot in American history. You know, we try to hide a lot of this stuff about racism and especially these type of events because we don't want the American views to be uh, marked dirty or we always want to make ourselves look good. So I feel like the American education system doesn't want uh, its people growing up knowing that the Americans did this stuff. And it's one of those things that they try to hide. Yeah, it was com- it's common for like the, or not much now, but back then in the 1990s, it was common for the American textbooks and the American course to be simply pushed a little bit to sway more that the Americans are always the heroes. They're always the one saving. They're the libertizer. They're like the always the protagonist and the good person. But and we try to hide the, this type, these type of events in our history, and not only here, but also with the Native Americans, uh, racism to black people in the South, and all types of events in the past that the Americans just try to mitigate in our textbooks that we should uh, teach in the American course. Yeah, and I think that sometimes the flaw we get is that we often do put ourselves on pedestals, and it's important to understand that America is made up of human beings who make mistakes, and in a diverse country like ours, those mistakes sometimes are costly like this one. But I want to thank both of you for uh, hosting this podcast. Very good job. Uh, this is Tigers by the Fire, Episode 3. Uh, we'll be back at it in a few days. Thank you.